Welcome to the Real Freedom Podcast with your host, Ryan Weimer. Today, I've got a very special guest, Mr. Kevin Hawk. Kevin, how are you? I'm awesome, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, my friend. Yeah, Kevin and I have developed quite a, a great relationship over the years with all of our development stuff going on. Idaho's changing so rapidly. So, Kevin, I wanted to have you on to dig a little bit deeper into how you got to this point and then also for us to be able to talk about our development deals and everything that's changing uh, in Idaho right now because it's such a an incredible opportunity and, and time to be an investor. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. A lot of exciting things going on right now, especially where the economy and rates are. And very appreciative and grateful that we've locked arms on some of our projects and that our assets are in Idaho. of the deals what got you into real estate because you know i know you were in athletics in high school and give me the story of how you got here yeah pretty simple actually i was uh i'm the youngest of six and i was always uh being the youngest you're just kind of thrown in the mix with your parents and older brothers and sisters and you're just doing everything and i can vividly remember my dad just always telling me saying hey once you uh get older and start your professional life if you can try to align with the big three, which is food, water, shelter, and anything that you do. And I've always had a passion for real estate and always have loved it. And kind of my previous life after I finished up playing college ball, I had to do a lot with the financial markets. And um, obviously that parlays into real estate. And lo and behold, I meet my business partner and we're very fortunate and blessed to create what we've done. And uh, we love the energy we have and can continue moving it forward. So what do you think you took, Kevin, from athletics? into what you do now because that was a big part of my background too and i know that teaches you some valuable lessons absolutely youth education and youth sports i think that helps defy who we are as we get older i always say uh sports is a metaphor of life you deal with adversity every day you got to communicate with your teammates and coaches you got to be responsible showing up when it's you know, 6 a.m. weights every other day or whether you got a doubleheader in baseball. Um, it really teaches you adversity uh, with it, which is, you know, that's life in general. For me, especially, my um, upbringing was more on the sports fields than it was in the classroom. No right or wrong to it on any means. But what I really found that from sports is like, hey, man, just keep at it each day. Eventually, something good will come from it. It may not be the path that you envisioned, but as long as you keep working at it and keep uh, doing the right thing, eventually you'll come out on top with something. Yeah, I think that's so spot on because mm -hmm. it's one of those few avenues where you can like learn how to deal with failure at a young age. You learn what, Big how time. to deal with disappointment and being triumphant in victory and everything that comes along with it and all the work and all the days and all the sweat and tears and blood and all the stuff that nobody actually ever sees. Right. It's like, it's like that iceberg model where you see the top, you know, five, 10% of the success, but below that, the 90, 95% is all that work. And I feel like sports is even more important for our youth today um, with social media world and a lot more of inclusive kind of participation trophy driven where 
how I was raised. There's a winner and loser. And if you lose, you need to see why you lost, adjust and move, move on. And that's where sports is such an indicative of what your professional career would be. Cause Ryan, just like, you know, we, we face a lot more failures than successes each day, but it's, it's how you look at that and how you turn a negative into a positive. I love that. At what point in your journey did you actually get into real estate? That was actually back in 2012. So my parents had a couple rental properties uh, and, and my dad and mom are very old school. They're, um, you know, shake of the hand and verbal uh, contracts they had. And they had some tenants that were in some of their properties here in Boise that unfortunately weren't paying rent and they talked to me about it. So I kind of stepped in to become their property manager uh, back then, which worked out because I lived in one of their houses in college. So we we traded services. I was their property manager for my bedroom for being uh, free in rent. And then the only thing I had to do was replace all the flooring in the houses for my exit with it. But I've been in uh, real estate since 2012, managing my parents and family's portfolio, which then led to you know us creating what we have now. Okay. A big theme of our show is talking about all the not so nice parts about real estate and the failures and the stuff that people don't like to bring up on social media. So yep. what is your most beautiful failure? Today or just this week, this lifetime? I mean, geez, it's, it's, it's an everyday basis. Uh, biggest failure, you know, again, it kind of goes back to that sports model of turn a negative into a positive. So I'd yeah. say the biggest failure slash learning experience Gosh, there's so many. I mean, instantly my mind goes to when we were doing lots of fix and flips and I overlooked some things on the contract just because it was really time of the essence and needed to get some things in. And we had a property come back on market. It was kind of a unique one. It was two homes on one residential lot in a whole single family subdivision community. And it was an estate sale. So the estate was just fire selling off that and five other properties. And this was a very good uh, value add buy. We actually put our offer in and got it accepted in 10 minutes as we were cash. And I didn't do my proper due diligence with what's called non-conforming properties. And long story short, it ended up working out in our benefit because we were able to do some public hearing things and get it done. But I definitely put our firm in a rock and a hard spot. So the biggest lesson I learned from that is go slow to go fast. And you don't know what you don't know until you ask questions. So always just be a sponge. And there's a reason why the big guy upstairs gave us two ears and one mouth to make sure that we listen more than we talk. And then once we have that information, take action. But it was definitely, uh, I had some sleepless nights buying that property, but knock on wood, it all worked out for the best. Okay. When was that? Uh, November of 2018. Wow. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Not that long ago, but still, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's pieces and things that you carry from that experience into what you do now, right? Oh, gosh, with coaching experience for our team, I mean, myself, first and foremost with it of going through, OK, why did we not look at that? What what was that word in the contract? What resources can we call on title, escrow, Google, YouTube? I always tell people, if you got Google and YouTube, you can accomplish anything in life. But then making an even bigger play of, of teaching and coaching our brokerage with our broker and all of our agents and commercial agents that we have. It's a big piece just going through that. Go slow to go fast. If you don't know something, don't be afraid to ask and just make sure we don't make that error again. I mean, as our whole company is based off of, we're going to make errors. That's human. That's what we do. But as long as we learn from that, don't make that same error, then that's a coachable moment right there. Totally agree. So 2012 is when you get involved in real estate. And now fast forward, you've got 
what, three different companies? What, what have you all got going on now? For the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, starting with our mother hen company is our management uh, firm, which is 208 Properties, which were over 300 units in the valley that we manage. We're now the property manager of Boise State um, University as well, doing all their faculty housing and taking over some of their bigger student housing building that they're doing. So from the time of 2015, when I meet my business partner until today, that is our upfront company, which is called 208 Properties. From there, um, we have our real estate brokerage. 208 Property Realty Group, where we've been doing some good work with you and your team, um, Ryan, and getting some properties under contract and getting them listed. Really value and appreciate what we have inside that brokerage. We are a lean athletic team as far as we don't have a ton of manpower. I'd rather have a couple agents doing multiple deals instead of having multiple agents only doing one or two deals a year. So we're really hyper-focused on that. And then what involves you and I a lot more is our development firm, which is called H2 Development Group. And we've been really blessed and fortunate, again, just putting our best foot in front of the other um, and have a handful of projects that were either in entitlements, permitting or building in the field right now. And that's my more day-to-day operation is inside H2 Development Group. Okay, got it. So you got a lot going on, man. How do you balance everything? Do you have an operator in each company or each arm or do you have a, a partner or what does that look like absolutely and i've mentioned it a couple of times here uh, my business partner we've been together since 2015 and i he's my best friend he's my brother we're locked neck to neck and everything that we do so he does a phenomenal job of truly being the ceo of all firms and having his hands inside of everything along with empowering our employees and just like you know you only go as far as your team So we really have been very selective of who we brought on in our company to own their roles and doing what we do. Um, We use technology to our advantage where we allow our employees to grow horizontally and vertically in their roles to take on more. And inside each company, we have designated people for those roles and what they do. And it's huge. And I will say if I do have, I mean, we're all human, we all do things, but I have some really unique personal habits um, with health and wellness that allows me to stay somewhat sane and uh, sharp and all this as you know you're being pulled in all directions all day and I usually have the first half hour to hour of myself with some uh, breath work and meditating I do stretching and books and it really fills up our bucket so then we can go put out fires the rest of the day right on so you started with the property management right correct yep and we opened up doors for that in November of 2017 Spent two years in research and development with all different concepts of what we wanted to implement. I mean, our big thing was, you know, you go to a broker or a financial advisor to get advice on uh, stocks, bonds, cash, gold, silver, so on and so forth. But there wasn't that party here located in the Treasure Valley when it came to real estate. And with our component, we came up in the management knowing we'd start those other companies to have a full service real estate investing firm here. I completely agree. There is a massive need for that in the marketplace. And I think part of the reason why that's the case is most people think that your average broker or realtor can fill Mm -hmm. the shoes there. And it's a big mistake from what I've seen. But I love that that's part of the, the mission. Why property management first? That's like the one that I, I honestly, I don't hear that often of people taking mm-hmm. that on first because it's pretty big uh, headache <laughs> dealing yeah, with tenants it, and everything. 
it, that it can be. It's how it's set up and how it's facilitated. And it's also the type of owner clientele that you want to have along with the type of tenant profile that you want to have. So we came up through property management. I mean, simple. My background, like we've talked about here with sports, my business partner was military. So we like doing hard things. And we came up through the management route because at the end of the day, owners hear from us once a month. And when we're paying out rents, tenants hear from us once a month when they're paying us rents. So having that 12 contact points a year, regardless, is so beneficial to be able to create ancillary parts of your business to service those type of clientele. And we came up through the property management route for a couple of different reasons. First one, Idaho is a non-disclosure regulated state with property management. So a lot of information and data you'll either see on Realtor.com, Zillow.com might not always be fully accurate because that information is not disclosed. And then the second piece, like I mentioned, the touch points that we'll have that we do have with our clients. And then the third one, my business partner and I really thought ahead when we started these companies and really foresaw us taking over, you know, in America, the European model, where in Europe, you have 66% tenants, 34% home ownership. In America, when we started this, we had 66% home ownership, 34% tenants. And I think COVID really sped us up where we're going as a country, where that's starting to change, where we're having a heck of a lot more tenants than home ownership now, especially with millennials and Gen Z coming in, wanting that freedom of flexibility. So we just really saw the writing on the wall that management services now and in the future are going to be very lucrative and attractive to investors and how you're gaining your wealth. I love all that. So a couple of things I want to unpack there. First of all, working in a non-disclosure state is kind of all you've known, right? And for those of you yeah. that don't know what a non-disclosure state is, there's a handful of states around the U.S. where, just as Kevin was saying, that a lot of the public information is not public uh, like it is everywhere else. So your sold price on your homes, a lot of times in Zillow or Redfin or however you're looking that up, is not accurate. You actually need MLS access to be able to yep. see that stuff. And I'd love your take on this, but... I think it keeps a lot of competition out because it's just another yeah. barrier to entry, at least on the wholesaling or deal finding side. I see that all the time where it makes it way harder for people out of state to actually get involved because they, they don't have access to comps. Yep. You're a hundred percent spot on. That's where it really is so beneficial in those non-regulated and non-disclosure states to have your people on foot because you will yeah. know the most information because you're rubbing elbows in those communities of really what's know what's going on. You know, we have a lot of family offices and clients that are in California that we represent where we really coach and guide them throughout this and where we have that trust and rapport because we have performed with them to really have them look at assets in a different level when especially when it comes to taxes for what gets recorded in the county compared to a true sales price. So we really find that into our advantage as a company because we're so integrated with local realtors, brokers, other property management firms, development firms, where we can actually turn that negative into a positive for our clients. Got it. Okay. So at what point do you think in the property management company, you were able to step away a little bit more? How many doors were you at? And what was that experience like before you took on? I'm guessing it was the brokerage piece. Ryan, it was so hard, man, because you're walking away from your baby, right? Knowing that, yeah. you, hey, in order for you to hit these growth moments, you have to release something out of your basket before you take on something new. And it was tough. Oh, it was tough. So 
I became a realtor for us back in 2000, I think it was June of 18, off the top of my head. And then I was running still leasing for us, everything client facing in the field when it came to tenants. I was actually laughing the other day. I did nine move-ins on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, the, oh. the, the three years I was running um, leasing. And as you know, as a business owner, whatever it takes to win, you do. And so Man, it's just kind of it. funny. Yeah, kind of funny looking back. But for when I released the responsibility of the management company, for us to take that next step was April of 2020. So COVID hits, you know, beginning and middle of March, everyone gets locked in their houses. Luckily, our industry was deemed as a um, essential business, I think it was called then. So my business partner and I were literally in our office right over here doing everything with our team being remote. I feel like we did such a good job of relaying what the state of Idaho was doing with either COVID relief programs and keeping tenants and landlords involved. We were doing a really good job of getting that information out to all parties. So as much uncertainty there was in the world, we were trying to bring certainty and being action oriented. And yeah. then May hits and we're all locked in our offices or house. I spent, you know, 30 days on this laptop uh, creating a brokerage, which we we got launched. And then I became our full-time realtor for us and was very blessed and fortunate with the clientele that we have in investment properties and 1031 exchange monies. We just really uh, worked hard at it and were able to put up some really good numbers and service our clients. And so May of 2020 is when essentially we brought on some more manpower in the management company facilitate leasing, where then I went off and built our brokerage and kind of took it from there. Okay. That's such an interesting path because quite a few people that I know that run brokerages hate it and completely dissolve them. (laughs) And some are like, this is great. I'm going to scale this thing to the moon. What made you want to, I guess, was it just kind of a natural fit that you were already a realtor? Like brokerage seems like the next logical mountain for me to climb or what was that process? Yeah. Um, it can be your biggest headache or your biggest success. Like you were just saying, that's why we like to keep a athletic team and our manpower down so we can have those agents and brokers do high volume with it. I've always been a very, uh, extroverted person ever since I was young. Um, sales became very natural to me as far as doing, um, you know, your scripts, your follow-up, your consistencies, your follow through with everything. And so, with where the direction of our companies was going, it just made sense for us to open up a brokerage and have that under our umbrella instead of something else where we have more control with that. And so me stepping into that role, it was really kind of like my last life at New York Life before we started 208 Properties. And I really thrive in that sales role and, and following up and executing and getting things done. So it was just kind of the natural next involvement for us to get there. We always anticipated it'd be 2025, um, not 2020. So we're a little ahead of pace. But as a company, we always had that envision that we'd have those services underneath one umbrella. Okay. Let's talk about that vision. The theme of this podcast is real freedom. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for people that are kind of in limbo or just starting out as an entrepreneur, finding their way, maybe they're starting a business or just thinking about starting a business. You know, you get involved in property management. At what point do you start to have this big vision or is it growing over time? And then how does that tie into what you define as real freedom? That's such a good question because it can, it can go all different avenues because everyone's at different stages in their life. 
you know, of yeah. wherever it, it may be, right? It might be you're just coming out of college where you don't have the family yet, the spouse yet, and the kiddos. So you're maybe able to take a little more risks in for your professional career to get to where you want to go. Or you could have someone like my business partner that was very comfortable in corporate America, 12 years at Wells Fargo and Wachovia as a consultant for them. Um, at the time was married with two kids where he took a way bigger risk than I did to start all this. And yeah. to come full circle with it, you got to trust here, man, whatever is in your heart and what you believe. And don't be afraid for the first couple years that you're not going to have what you want. But all those sacrifices that you're doing up front will definitely pay dividends later. Personally, for me with that, I've chosen, you know, not to start the family life yet to put all my baskets in my professional bucket to go that route. It wouldn't be fair if I did have a family right now with the hours that I work, because I wouldn't be able to commit to them. So there's always a give and take in whatever it is. And the way I see it is what fills up your bucket and your heart the most you pursue. In the summer of 2017, before we started the companies, we watched a documentary, um, Roland, my business partner and I, called Kobe Bryant Muse. If it's on Showtime, I highly recommend every single person to watch it as um, Kobe Bryant nice. has one of the most extreme work ethics. It hit me really hard. He goes, in order to do something great, you're going to have to let go of other things. And whether that be the best family man, you could be best you know, husband, best father, best friend, whatever it may be. In order for you to do something exceptional in this shaft, something else is going to have to let go. And for me, I kind of always thought that since I was a youngster, but to hear it from someone that's done it, gave me a lot more confidence and put an exclamation point on it to just get up and go. Oh man, I love that. Kobe's got the Mamba mentality, right? I think it speaks volumes though. Like, were you always wired like that? Cause that is a very mature decision that you made in your twenties, right? Or maybe even before. Yeah, I was 24 um, when we started all these conversations going, yes, I've always been wired like this. I think when you're the youngest in a family and it was all sports driven for us, you didn't have a lot of emotions or feelings. It was just you go get it done and, and win and find a way. And yeah, I've always, you know, I had a, a brother that's closest one to me is five years older. And I've, as, as kids, I would wake him up. I would make sure to get him breakfast, um, make sure he found his keys to drive to school. And I've just kind of always been that unique way, kind of an old soul. And it's, you know, really parlayed to some good business successes. Awesome. So at what point then after the brokerage, are you crazy enough to actually take on development and, and start up that? Again, as a company, we love those challenges. And with the, yeah. with the turnkey process that we've created as companies, it allows us to open up that shaft. And man, development has been the biggest challenge in my life. And I absolutely love it. It's a challenge on a day-to-day -day basis as things are changing. So what really occurred with that is we used to do a lot of fix and flips. And with the housing pricing that really occurred in the Treasure Valley and took off, call it, you know, 2018 to 2022, there wasn't a lot of meat on the bones for fix and flips. And so we are looking at other ways to continue to grow our firm. And luckily, we are able to get some good land deals at a pretty low basis in order for things to pencil out for new construction. And to be honest, it kind of just fell in our laps and we were off and going. And then we found some success with one project, which then led to us buying another project to another project. And then all of a sudden we blink now and we have seven projects that we're uh, doing with a little more than 300 units right now. And I say it every day. I'm the luckiest person in the world. I get to learn something new every day when I go to work. So you go from basically never having done a development deal, although 
you know, a lot of fix and flip experience, which yep. in some elements, new builds are easier and others, they're way more challenging. Um, Spot on, my friend. Know. And, yep. and now up to 300 units in construction. That is a massive mission, a uh, massive vision. How are you finding the right mix of what to take on, what to push away? Because I know in talking with you, you guys push away more than you even take on. Yep. Talk about our that. Biggest, yeah, our biggest advantage with that is our off-market sourcing, you know, fully transparent because we're able to get right to the consumer and see their wants and needs and what they want to play out. And I always tell everyone, I, my whole family lives in Montana now. They're all on ranches. Um, I know someday someone's going to knock on their door to subdivide their land. It's, you know, a growing area. And I want that someone to be me where they really yeah. care about the seller, making sure they're taken care of, whether it's, hey, you know, we can do a deal where you can still live here for 12 months, even after we close, or, hey, we'll help you buy the next property, whatever it may be. So with us, we just got energy and we just kept going with it. On the numbers we're penciling out, we were very conservative and underwriting at the time because we were in such a low interest rate environment, where now we're getting a lot of calls of deals that just quite aren't penciling out because of the rates have changed, where we get to be selective and kind of cherry pick if we want to move on something or the other. And when we were really acquiring those properties, they just logically made sense with the growth here, the the team that we had as far as architects, engineers, and to really drive that home and get projects approved and get them performed in the field. Got it. And do you have like a financial freedom number or or what is your why? Because, gosh, that's a lot of volume. Are you guys increasing? Are we building the Death Star or is there a number to get to? What is that? come out to. Yeah, we have some very lofty goals with all of our firms. Um, our management company, our goal is to get to 5,000 units. As I mentioned on here, we're just over 300 now, but with what we have in the pipeline with H2 Development Group and the other alliances that we have with other developers and builders um, in this valley, we anticipate getting there within the next couple years just with everything that's in the pipeline. And then on the development side, it really just comes down to the deal. We have, a, as you can tell from this call, we have a lot of energy as a company and what we're doing. So when deals make sense in today's modern world, anybody can work behind here and get things done or we'll continue that pipeline growth and come in that way. You know, we do have some goals as a company of where we want to be on 1231-2025 leading into 2026. And we feel like as a firm, if we all continue to stay in our lanes, lock arms, doing what we're doing, we're going to be able to reach those. Oh, I love that. Uh, I have no doubt you absolutely will. Do you see foresee yourself doing this for a long time or do you think this is just a season and what does the future hold in store? Uh, kind of getting back to the beginning where my pop said food, water, shelter of the big three, we're always going to be in this sector. It's too much fun not to, even with all the ups and downs that you have with everything. I really like collaborating with like-minded people like yourself and others in this area where you can feed off each other's energy to get things done and collaborate. So I don't ever see us not being in the real estate world. Now we have ventured off and started some cows up in Montana that my brothers raised. So that kind of goes into the food portion where we can maybe see that getting bigger later on. But at the end of the day, I want to be in hard assets in this world of where we're going and we're going to be here for the lifelong span of that. Right on. Let's pivot to the nitty gritty of development. And I know we could spend a whole separate podcast per deal a couple of days what, of it <laughs> days of it yeah absolutely what is something somebody at like a really beginner level they've never done a development deal and the context here is 
we meet with sellers all the time, right? That are like, Correct. well, you could, you know, my property's worth this because you can split these off and you can build fourplexes in the back. And they really have no idea what they're doing. It's just out of, you know, they're, they're naive. And yep. I'm wondering what someone at a very beginner level could do to understand what all goes into development. Absolutely. And I speak on our bread and butters infill projects. We're not yeah. doing large master site plans of four or five, 600 unit complexes. You know, we're cherry picking more infills that are more of a controllable and have a shorter lifespan than you would a large master plans. So getting to your question as far as, you know, what advice I would have for someone getting into this realm, simple, put your ego in your pocket and ask questions. Align yourself with people like you, like me, other mentors in the area that have done it. So you can piggyback off their experience and their time of what they've done well and what they haven't done well. And you can really use that information. And don't be afraid to partner with people, especially on your first couple deals. There's going to be strengths that you bring to the table. There's going to be strengths that either another party or even a couple parties bring to the table in executing it and getting it done. You know, one thing that we did is when I was in city meetings, I would, it's kind of dorky, but this is how I learned. I would write down words that I didn't know that they would say. Let's just say um, something as fire apparatus turnaround. Those are things that are very important when you're doing entitlements that may not to the general public. I would just simply write them down and I would Google them when I left the office. So then I can actually have an informed conversation next time that comes up. Or that might help me, okay, it might not help me on this project, but I can be aware of it as I'm underwriting this next deal. Okay, do we have a lot? Do we have enough lot surface or so on and so forth? So biggest things with that, ego in the pocket, align yourself with people that have done it and that are trusted and want to see you succeed. And then the third one, just be a sponge, man. Be a gym rat of it. If you know, When you're having those meetings with the city, I'd also recommend just go on public hearings just to hear what the neighborhoods are doing. What is the city wanting to see? What is the city not wanting to see? Are they looking at maybe rezoning some properties where you can take advantage of that, build the density that is needed for the sites, kind of all those encompassed into one? Yeah, I, that's a great answer. And there's so much that goes into it. I think for me, one thing I really underestimated was when you peek behind the curtain about how approvals are given or denied. It's pretty eye-opening to see <laughs> the politics that play a factor, you know, the neighbors that come out with pitchforks and torches and yep. in those neighborhood meetings and the not in my backyard stuff. There's an element of risk and reward in development that is dwarfs everything else. How do you have the stomach for that? That is such a good question, because just like you said, I mean, it can come down to a public hearing of an hour of, you know, the four or five councilmen members up there, along with the mayor that can either say yay or nay. And yeah. you've spent a year to two years on this project from land acquisition to putting your team together, the significant soft costs that go into it all up to four or five decision makers to say yes or no. And so how to look at it. And that's where you just do your homework, you know, be on those public hearings, see what other applications are going in that are being approved. See what design review planning and Zodi city council members are wanting to see in their communities, what they're not wanting to see. You know, I can give you one real life example as we're doing some projects near Boise State on the south side of Beacon where we're reaching out to Boise State. Hey, what type of housing? I know it's not your land, but what do you guys want to see in this area that really caters to the needs that you guys need here at Boise State? We've met with city officials at Boise of, hey, how would you want to see this design so we can work together and really come with that? And as far as stomaching, 
In today's modern world, as long as you got one of these, man, you're never done until you whip yourself in your mind. So if something doesn't go or get approved, okay, let's adjust with it. Take a half step back, take a big picture. Another big thing I would say, remove the emotion out of it and then go off and going. And I can give you an example. All of our projects we named after our kids. And this last one came up. Um, it was uh, up to me and uh, I don't have any kiddos yet. And so I named it uh, after my mom. And so there's a little more like pride with it, right? When you name it after your family member. And we had some issues with one of the neighbors that it almost got our project denied. And I can get very emotional with it because you have a lot of pride in what you're doing. And it's a really good checkpoint for me. It's like, okay, take a half step back. Look at the big picture. If you need to get to here, what actionable steps can we do to get to that point? And so it's just really never, ever give up. If you know that this is going to get done, just keep believing in yourself and keep going with it. I love that. Yeah. To your point, man, removing emotions, it's easier said than done. I know me personally, I've either been in those, you know, meetings with city council or been on Zoom watching them unfold. And, you know, people are saying things about you, about your property oh, yeah. that aren't true at all. Yep. The council members are saying certain things. It's like it is really difficult, but you, you totally have to put blinders on and just say, what can I control? I'm going to focus on what I can control. Yep. And it, I don't think there's really any magic recipe for that other than just nope. doing it and failing. Like seriously, Correct. just, you know, and then just rubbing dirt on yourself and getting back up. Yep, um, you're only going to get better as it goes on. Totally. And in us working together, it's been mm -hmm. apparent how key an architect plays in the development process. And if you were to rank an architect as, as a key member of your team, where do they rank? in terms of importance on your development team? It depends on the type of company you have and what pieces you put in the puzzle of their lanes and roles. And it's so important to have those upfront conversations, not only with your architect, but your civil engineer, your landscape architect, depending on how you take a project through, you're also MEP engineers. You need to have those conversations upfront for expectations so you know how that's going to go. They all have to work together at the end of the day. So an architect is just as important as a civil, as far as anyone else with it. Depending on how you design your team, your architect can be the either the success of it or the failure. And that's really your role as the owner to dictate whose lanes are going to be with what. Always do your due diligence before you sign contracts with those consultants. And do the due diligence, call on other projects that they've done before, look at their website, see their success rate. You know, one thing that we're really proud of as a company is we have changed up our team with some architect and civil engineers um, to be able to speed things up. We had one project that took 21 months in the city to get entitled. We just had another one go in and out in four and a half months. You know, so from where we were in early 2022 compared to where we are now getting projects approved night and day. And that's putting the right people in the places and you always get better as you go. So you know what expectations to set. And if they can't meet those, you know, in reality, okay, where are we at? And how can we adjust and go? Yeah. Wow. Uh, the four months to 20, 21 months thing. <laughs> You're definitely talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions. And then yep. you factor in timing of market cycles too, right? And how that delay impacts things. Market you cycles, are, product, yep. You're t yeah, material costs, availability. Mm -hmm. You're talking multiple seven figures of variance. How in the world do you underwrite a deal like that, especially now with all the uncertainty going on and 
maybe it looks like things are maybe feeling a little bit more stable at the time we're recording this, right? The, the Fed has paused two or three times in a row. Um, yep. and, and it looks like the data is kind of normalizing a bit. I don't want to speak too soon, but obviously there might be still some more pain to be felt or upside to be felt, depending on where you're at and what industry you're in. But how in the world do you underwrite a deal right now? Conservatively. Underwrite those things conservatively as much as possible. Know when to take on debt or equity. And that really is an indicative of how much knowledge you have in that municipality of their permitting process and when you actually get permits and hands to perform. And not only lean on your architect, civil engineer, whoever's helping you with it, or if you have a whole planning company, do your own due diligence so you know true because you're the ones that are signing the personal guarantor on those loans. It's not your architect. It's not your engineer. Personally, we've learned a bunch. Uh, we vested a, a loan too early on one of the projects that we had to refinance that was very hefty in the six figures that it cost us. And we can sit here and you know cry and mope around, or we can swallow it and adjust from it and then know on the future ones, okay, we're not going to press this lending button and order these appraisals until XYZ is in our hands or what's needed. So it really goes down to you do your own due diligence, lean on your team. That's why you have a team. But at the end of the day, um, call on others that have done it before you. So you have realistic expectations of when to go take on that debt or equity. I love that. So guys, zoom out a little bit and give that the context of what Kevin's talking about, because I think it's really important. It's happened to me a few times as well. When you buy a piece of land, you can either buy it with just a regular loan for the land or if it's got a, a home on it or whatever, yep. and then wait until you have your build permits in hand, all your drawings and stuff are fully approved, you've been through planning and zoning, design review, all these steps, and then you can fund your construction loan or you can fund the whole thing right away from the beginning with the purchase or anywhere in between. And so... I have been, uh, not the victim is the wrong word, but I was naive enough a couple of times to fund the whole thing at the start or very early in the process because I was told, hey, it's going to be two or three months and then you'll have permits, right? Well, the yeah. lender, that construction lender is underwriting your loan and writing your loan with points, fees and everything based on a $3 million, $5 million, $10 million build, right? Yep. And so if your term length is 12 to 16 months, I've had a few where I don't even have build permits in hand and my entire construction loan term has expired. Now I have to go get another construction loan. So I basically wasted a large chunk of money just in, in sitting in those costs. So that's why the timing of this is so important. So Kevin, if we're just getting really specific with being conservative in your estimates, mm -hmm. what does that look like? If an architect tells you it's going to be six months, and the city says six months, you're going to do 12 months or what is that? I underwrite that for eight to nine months now. Okay. Uh, just to be realistic, because, hey, if we hit the six months and that's the powers to be, that's what they shared, then we're going to high five and love it. But then you also have, you know, it depends on the municipality. You know, they might be understaffed. You got holidays that are coming up right now. They might not be able to hold quorums for their design review or planning and zoning where that gets pushed two weeks back. And then the other ones is a trickle down effect. Um, you can't have delays with routing your mylar for your final plat where the person you're working with, let's just say at ACHD here is out for two weeks. Well, if you plan on that being done then, well, that's not going to be done because that we need that signature and 
stamp from that individual. So <clears throat> with it, always factor in some extra times and you'll know that more as you get involved with it and have projects under your belt and what you're doing to have those realistic expectations. You know, a couple of years ago, kind of any, you know, family office or hedge fund or private monies was really open to giving you any and all monies that you needed for a development, especially in this area here in Idaho. And now they're getting a little more tighter and restrictor on some things. Um, so it's just really knowing that balance and working with your money sources, whether it's debt or equity, to see when funding needs to occur so you don't have wasted dollars going out that aren't being used for your project. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely critical. So we've covered a lot of the challenges in development mm -hmm. and a lot of the risk. Yeah. Now I'm sure the audience is wondering why in the world would you ever want to do one of these things? That sounds like a, a brain hemorrhage waiting to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, it is. That's where I would say as a developer um, in just my small time, right? I'm, you know, just embarking on this with what we do as a company. I do not know everything by any means, but I will share that our development firm, we're sponges, man. We learn and we go. So with that, I would say, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, pretty optimistic guy, but I'd say probably 80% of your day is going to go wrong or not the information that you want to hear. And it's really how you pivot that and turn it into a benefit like we talked before. And then the other piece too, of why you would do this, Man, it feels good knowing that you're making a difference with housing in your area and you are building something that's going to be there a heck of a lot longer than you and I on this earth is going to be here. And there's something about the pride and taking care of your community that, you know, when it is 12, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and you're still working on a project. You can remember, OK, I'm doing something for the greater good of this world and this community. And that's what you know really helps you move forward. That's why we name our projects after our kids because it gives you that little extra boost to keep going. Yeah. And, and then I think the, the financial upside, obviously, right? If you're doing one or two fix and flips, granted, the amount of time from start to finish on these development deals is usually more. However, yep. I've had a flip that has taken over a year before and yep. lost quite a bit of money on it. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, you're talking multiple seven figures of profit yep. potentially on all of these, right? Yeah, you know, and that's um, when it comes to the monetary component, you're spot on with that. Doing the fix and flips, you're going to have probably a heck of a lot less dollar volume, but you're going to have a way quicker turnaround time um, and less moving parts with it. Where the development world, man, you're taking a piece of dirt, adding so much value to it in between to either then selling to the open market, selling to investors, or placing qualified uh, tenants in those properties. So that lifespan, let's call it, 36 to 42 months instead of a fix and flip would be two to five months in that time period. And the financial uh, piece can be life-changing with it. I mean, I think we're all in the real estate world for the same exact reason. We want to have that annuitized revenues coming in while we're not working on it to be able to enjoy what we want, whether that be family, whether that be personal goals, whatever it may be. And that's really the name of the game. We plan, we're building all these to keep us rentals, to be able to provide for all the employees in this office um, and everything we do is so we can spend more time with the family, spend more time doing other things as well. No, oh, I love that. That's, that is a powerful why. And mm -hmm. one thing that, that I've been impressed with about your operation, Kevin, is location, 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 right? And I see you being yep. very selective about what areas you guys are, are developing in and buying projects. For those listeners that don't know about what's happening in Boise, Idaho, where where in the heck is Boise, Idaho, or what's all going on in this place called Garden City? Can you paint the picture of, of all the, 
the upside and, and why you are choosing specific locations around there. Yeah. Kind of starting back to the basics. It's easy where you live, right? Born and raised in this area. So you're going to know the lay of the land as far as when it comes to real estate, specifically getting to Boise. You know, I think Boise State has done a great job of really growing and expanding their university, which has put the Treasure Valley and Boise on the map. I think it's easy to relate to sports. I believe it was the 2007 Fiesta Bowl. Um, we go and upset Oklahoma, the blue turf field and everything. There's a lot of excitement, which then leads to people wanting to know more about the city, which then leads to, okay, maybe more people are coming here. We need more roads. We need more police departments. We need more fire departments. We need more housing. So that was kind of taken off during that time with it, which led for us and kind of this question is specifically why Garden City? You know, Garden City is a unique spot where it's an infilled city surrounded by Boise um, taken up and it's located just on the west side of our downtown. And typically how cities are built out is from the river out, right? Because that's what attracts people. You get greenbelt access, you get the, you know, floating the river, you get fishing in the river, all those fun things where Garden City was really built to just be a commuter city. It's what connected you from Boise to Eagle, Boise to Star, Boise to Meridian. And it was built on the corridors of uh, a portion of it on State Street, and that might even be in city of Boise, and then a portion of it on Shinden Boulevard, which are your two lanes on the north and south side of the river. Where with us, we really saw the growth expanding in this valley and location being so keen. There really isn't a lot of ton to build out in Boise anymore, unless you're going towards Gowan Road exit in South Boise. Really not a lot left in Meridian that hasn't been swooped up by bigger developers. So when we saw that, we wanted to really create our niche and in infill projects. And we felt like Garden City was the best place where we're building along that green belt. And man, has that city taken off, especially the last couple of years and everything that it's going to be in the next couple of years as well where we're really blessed and fortunate we go off location first because that really drives what type of tenants and residents are going to be buying and um, renting those units. And we've just found a lot of success in that city along the river. And so you're so bullish on the area, you're building a place for your mom. Yes, I am in that subdivision that um, I was talking about earlier that we named after her. Yeah, I mean, because it checks off all the boxes. Uh, she wants to be around people. She wants to have moving water with the river there. She wants to be social. So, yeah, building a place in there for my parents. Um, and we're either going to end up really well, Ryan, or we're not going to end up well. We got all our eggs in the basket in Garden City. And kind of going back to when people are first starting, don't only listen to people that talk the talk, but also watch what they do for walk the walk and where they're investing and what they're doing. So, yeah, I, I, I've had envisions that once the time comes that I have a family and kiddos that we go down there and go have coffee with my mom and dad and go have a blast down there. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And to give the listeners some more context. Garden City is like, it's practically walkable from Boise, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, it's pretty much the same area. And when you go there, it's already changing rapidly. So for those of you that are familiar with like the Rhino District in Denver or the Pearl District in San Antonio, those are great examples of what Garden City is becoming for Boise. It's still Boise, but it's right along the river there. And yep. Kevin, what kept it from being redeveloped until now because i think it's kind of insane that when you walk it and you and i walked the boardwalk yep. you know it's got a bunch of breweries restaurants it's like the hip new place to be mm -hmm. it's all walkable there's so much space everything is really nice and new can you talk a little bit about garden city's history and what's taken it so long to be gentrified yeah. 
Absolutely. Especially being born and raised here, I was um, spent a lot of time in Garden City as a kid as my dad has always been an entrepreneur and he owned a couple of commercial buildings in Garden City. Um, so my brother and I used to run up and down those streets and cause havoc long time ago. And then my mom was actually the first person to throw out the inaugural first pitch at Memorial Stadium in Garden City. I think it was like back in 1988. And then we used to have family uh, horses at the racetrack in Lebois, uh, Lebois Racetrack located in Garden City. So I've really spent a lot of time, ironically, in Garden City as a yeah. kiddo. And so the reason um, for the new development now, instead of, hey, why wasn't this 10 years ago? Why wasn't it 20 years ago? Why wasn't it 30 years ago? Garden City has done a phenomenal job of changing their code to cater to all the people coming into Idaho. It used to be such an industrial heavy area that you would have, you know, anywhere from an acre to 10 acres taken up of, let's just say, a fencing company, or let's just say a car dealership company, or Nelson's RV, per se, that's taking up all that space, where now that land is becoming so valuable because of all the organic growth going around it with Boise Star Eagle, where that's really the place to be if you want to be near Boise and downtown. Um, so the city changing the code and promoting more density with that. And Mayor Evans has done a great job, along with all the city officials and staff that they have there of wanting to see the area revamped where, hey, let's take out the industrial where we got an acre you know, place. Let's put in beautiful housing so we get home ownership and quality tenants in this area to really enjoy what Garden City offers. I got to ask the question, that yeah. is exactly what is going to solve our housing affordability issue around the country. But it seems Garden City has gone completely against the grain, whereas most cities are just, you know, not in my backyard, it's impossible yep. to get stuff approved, or added density. I'm curious why you think that is. You know, I just think they're seeing the writing on the wall, and they're doing a good job of reaching out to other bigger municipalities in different states of saying, okay, we got a golden opportunity here with this, you know, where we are as a city and the direction we want to go. Let's lean on you guys to see what went well, what did not go well with, you know, Urban Land District and other cities that did it. And they're doing a really good job of, of putting that ego in the pocket again and seeing what worked in other cities and how can we combine that. You know, I think the biggest issue that Garden City has, and it's with any city, is density, you know, green space versus density. You know, everyone likes to have the openness, but then you're not having the issue of solving affordable housing. So they've done a good yeah. job of rewriting some codes as far as parking and guest parking requirements to piggyback of what you said. It's a walkable city, man, up and down that uh, Greenbelt area, either getting it downtown, take an e-bike or a scooter. Um, you have a lot of different options. And so Garden City, um, I just really commend them, hence why we are in their city doing a lot of projects, uh, promoting that density with affordable housing so we can bring in those type of people and clientele to really then stimulate all those businesses that are going in. I mean, Garden City is kind of the artsy fartsy area as far as microbreweries going right. in there, wine tasting rooms, kind of having that feel from the north end kind of coming this way with everything. And so they want to stimulate that economy. And it's just really exciting. I really believe we're going to look back in five years and see Garden City and saying, hey, I want to own real estate in this area. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're going to look back and say, I wish I had bought more. Yep. Right? So mm -hmm. I definitely feel that way. So the engineer in me, I have to ask a, a really analytical question. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at an infill parcel uh, yep. as a potential development, how in the world do you decide, am I going to do townhomes here? Am I going to do commercial, multifamily, a combination of all of it? Yeah, that's where taking out that emotion piece and take a half step back and see what the consumer is driving at this time. 
and what the economy is doing. Are your comparables on this SFR or townhome model, are those trending up? Are those trending down? Is that two bedrooms, three bedrooms, four bedrooms? Where is that direction going? Again, with us having our own property management company and really getting that feedback from the tenants that are not only existing here, but coming in from other states. How can we coordinate that to make sure we hit that tenant need so we eliminate vacancies? We have a better continuation extra strategy with those. If you want to do it, put it all in a box. I do like to have flexibility with projects where you can have some for sale product in there and you can have some for rent product in there. And the reason being is that if you know stuff hits the fan one way or the other, hey, I can liquidate some lots right now or hey, I can keep it. I can sell a whole multifamily piece to a clientele or whatever it may be. And just giving yourself the most options and working with your city officials. They are there to work with you and help. It may be tough because they're overworked and understaffed at times, but have those conversations with them and see what's working and what the consumer wants at the end of the day. Well, that's super smart. And I think especially with what's happened in the last year and a half, but really the last three years with COVID and now doubling of interest rates, yep. having a successful, a very successful property management company gives you a very real time pulse on how the rental market is behaving. And you're equipped, I think, to make some pretty uh, strategic financial decisions and, and planning decisions early in the process that other people yep. might not otherwise know about, right? You got the real time. You're feeling it every day. Yep. And I can just give you one example with it is in all of our one bedroom apartments that we do, um, the biggest feedback we get is, hey, I still work from home, you know, whether it's full time or whether it's part time or, hey, I go in the office Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, but I work at home Thursday and Friday. Well, us as a developer, property manager and real estate brokerage, we need to take that information and go execute on it. So what we do in our one bedrooms, we make extra bigger closets in the area where we convert it to half as a closet and half as a workstation. And so we put in nice desks with all the lights and all the um, plugins that you need. So then people can have the differentiator of saying, hey, I don't always need to work on my dining room table. or I don't always need to work on my kitchen island. I can have that little small escape, take a couple steps over here and kind of shut off that I am at home and really feel like I have a home office concept. You know, so that's one thing that we've done that we're seeing a lot of success on our plans with going in that direction. Yeah. And, and I'm sure just from a financial perspective, right, that little tiny thing that just that one example could add what another $50, $100 a month to your rents, plus also help with your vacancy and your time um, oh. to fill those units. That has yep. a massive impact on your pro forma across oh, the portfolio. Trem tremendously. I mean, we just got a report today from NARPRAM. Um, in Idaho here and vacancies are up to 7.8% now. Multifamily vacancies are on the rise as well. So how we look at underwriting that and safeguarding ourselves, okay, like, hey, once this product is built, say we're in a similar interest rate environment, there's not a lot of movement in real estate. If we're here at 1500 and we have product B at 1500, but we have that ancillary benefit of uh, office inside your closet, we feel the consumer is going to pick our product over this one. We're not necessarily getting more in rents or having scalability, but hey, we know we're safeguarding vacancies. And as markets fluctuate and as time goes, then that will allow us to have $25 increase, $75 increases. Years go on with that because we're able to offer that benefit. And it's very cost effective to build that in the field. And that's where you've really got to be married with your architect on that and making sure that they see your vision you see their vision as well and how you can align that to deliver the best product to the consumer. Spot on. So question about construction. Yep. 
when you can go the GC route, right? And of course, mm -hmm. you get to a certain number of units where then you need a supervisor and you need, yep. you know, other people watching the site and everything. Or you can go with the industrial builders that are going to be more expensive. You guys actually have your own crews. Was that something you built from the start or from the construction side of things? How did you structure everything when you were building this out? Totally. And we do a blend. It just depends on the project and what's being built, especially if it's going to be more of a commercial code, then we outsource that. If it's more of a residential code, then that's something that we're able to do in-house with you know, a project manager or whatever we have at that time. And that's a great learning lesson. Um, in all ways, you know, I'd say when I first got into this, I looked more at pricing than ancillary benefits and reputation of when able to get a project done. And now, you know, live and learning. Pricing is still a factor. Don't get me wrong. It's a huge driving factor with it. But I go more off experience. And what's my rapport either with that general contractor or if it's in-house, that employee? I want to have good rapport because you already know going into construction, more is going to go wrong than good with the project. So you need to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations. It's not their fault. It's not our fault. It's it's construction. Life happens with things. So being on the same page with it, and that's where you really just need to look at your deal. Um, and that kind of goes back to the beginning of this podcast is um, align yourself with people that have done it. You know, we have had a lot of learning experiences with doing a project on a residential code with doing it in-house. We've had a lot of successes. We've had a lot of failures. That allows us to pivot on the next ones and really take advantage of that information. So it just kind of depends on the deal and where you are. And the other thing I'll share right now, along with where we are as an economy, a lot of things are negotiable right now. A lot more things that used to be just set in stone of this is your term, these are your rates. I mean, we've done um, a lot of uh, negotiating with lenders on terms and conditions right now, along with some other general contractors. And so don't be afraid to have that conversation with that because there's a lot of things in play right now. Yeah, to that point, we're definitely seeing labor softening and some yep. cost softening. It's probably hasn't bottomed because there's a lag effect with people finishing up projects and everything. But yeah. totally agree. There are more people looking for work now. Yep. Um, ironically, there's also lenders that need to place money and there's less people doing bigger projects. So yep. albeit you can't get the terms that you could maybe a year and a half ago, but there are lenders that are willing to be flexible and float you big purchase orders, right? That's something yep. that we've talked about, Kevin, yep. where, hey, if, if lumber's down on a certain day, you can save hundreds of thousands of dollars having access to those funds early to pull the trigger on that lumber pack. 100%. And I will share too, because we're talking specifically about this valley, lenders are wanting to lend here because they see the writing on the wall of where people are going, where they're going to continue to go. And I always go off our big three here. First one is we have strong public school systems. So it caters to the younger families that are coming in here. We have phenomenal healthcare systems that allow our seniors to live here, be snowbirds if they need to in the winter months to sneak down to Arizona, but they have their primary residence here. And then our last one is our lifestyle with river running through our city, world-renowned skiing within two to three hours away, hiking trails. So coming full circle with that, lenders see that writing on the wall and they want to work with developers like you and I, Ryan, on here to get projects funded because it may not look great and attractive now, but that's going to look really good in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, and thereafter. Yeah. It, well, and Idaho is, is a red state. Mm -hmm. So that helps a lot, obviously, especially, yep. you know, when it comes to landlord tenant laws as well, Yes, you have more control, right? If somebody's not paying, at least in my experience with the evictions that I've had, you can usually get somebody out within 60 days or less. 
yep. most of the time. And that's, so. it's so nice having that three degree separation of having our own property management company here. At the end of the day, tenants are people. Let's have a conversation with it and see what workable solutions we can drive to that. And being in a landlord friendly state like Idaho and not having our hands tied um, as far as what we can or cannot do. I can't give enough kudos to our team of having those tough conversations with tenants and owners to find win-win solutions. No, I love that. What would you like the the audience to know about everything you guys have going on right now and, and ways that people can reach out to you? You know, whether it be fundraising, whether it be for construction deals, properties, what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're always looking to take more projects on with the right partners and what that may be. And it really just goes off relationship base. So if, you know, someone's looking to either acquire property in the Treasure Valley, have something managed or looking for a longer term play and doing developments, um, that's why we built this firm from the ground up is to have those opportunities and conversations with all different type of investors that range from single family mom pop to big institutional families family offices that are taking down bigger multifamily. You know, we really have those services um, and ancillary benefits to be able to bring all that to the consumer and the investor. And if you have questions, please just reach out. I mean, find us on 208 Properties and H2 Development Group. We have a pretty big footprint um, on social media as well. And we're a one-stop shop to be able to have all those conversations. Cool. So guys, we'll post those links to uh, Kevin's socials in the show notes. My last question for you, Kevin, mm -hmm. where do you see Boise and Garden City in the next three to five years? See, it's a great place to be and live, my friend. I mean, we got an election year coming up in 2024 that I think is going to continue to shake up our globe. And I think we're going to have people and families be placed in different areas with that. Again, kind of going back to our big three with public schools, senior health care and lifestyle. That really caters to everything right there in Garden City and the Boise area. So I continue to see a lot of people coming here, still having that remote work lifestyle where, hey, they maybe need to fly into an L.A. or Seattle or San Francisco for a week of work, but then they can work three weeks at home, whatever it may be. I still see that continuing on in the future. And again, owning real estate in Boise, Idaho, in a Garden City, as long as you can stay alive to 2025, that's our motto here as far as rates and where we are. I think you're going to end up really enjoying where your hard assets are here in uh, the Treasure Valley. I love it, man. Anything else you want to leave the audience with? You know, just to sum this up, as long as you have a work ethic, you can accomplish anything in real estate. There's so many resources and tools and mentors to reach out. When I first started off in college, when we all get out of college, right? Nobody has any money. All you got is kind of just your work ethic and what you can do. And I spent a lot of hours in the library reading books on how to start investing in real estate and how to get there. So not just hearing it from myself or you, Ryan, but you know we're just like anyone else where as long as you just apply yourselves day in, day out, and you surround yourself with the right team members, you'll get it done. One of my great friends and mentor is the vice president of CBH Homes, the largest builder in the state of Idaho. Um, I love her to death. Her name's Rhonda Conger. When I reached out to her to have a cup of coffee before we started all this, she just said, Kev, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, have a team. And that's where it's so true, as I've lived and learned, surround yourself with the right people. Um, and when you do that, regardless, you'll come out on top. Words from the wise. That is spot on. <laughs> Love it, Kevin. Well, thanks, thanks for having you. You've been an awesome guest. 
and uh, see you guys on the next one. Peace. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you.